Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we now turn our attention to your word, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you'd cause us to hear what you'd have us to hear. That you would do your work in our lives for your glory. That the name of Jesus would be lifted up in what you have done on our behalf. We thank you for this time. I ask that you would give me clarity of speech. But mostly that you would cause us to hear what you would have us hear for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Immediately prior to today's text, um, which I'm going to read in just a second, Paul had just finished the, the, the greeting part of this letter to the Ephesians. So, so here, here today's text. This is Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So ends the reading of the word. These were very special people to Paul. He had spent more time with them than any other church he had planted. He had discipled them and experienced persecution and miracles and revivals with them and shed tears for them, warning them about false teachers. He was now sending this letter to them from prison. His greeting included praising them for their faith in Christ and for their love for the brothers and sisters, the saints. And he told them that he routinely prays for them specifically, and this is what we've covered the last few sessions. He's prayed specifically that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they would truly know God and the riches of our inheritance in him. And he prayed that they would truly comprehend that as believers in Christ, we have God the Holy Spirit in us which should give us confidence no matter what is going on around us, since we, ha- we are his body, his church, his presence in the world, demonstrating his power, the same power 
that rose that caused Christ to be raised from the dead with his power and hope which no one can stand before. His opening also included amazing truths that he wanted this young church to hold on to. The amazing truth that God chose us before the foundation of the world, before we could do anything to contribute to his merciful selection of us. The truth, the the good news that God has redeemed us and forgiven us because of Jesus' death on our behalf. He reminded them that we are adopted as children of God, made heirs, which we will remain forever. He reminded them that in Christ, life and blessing are found. He reminded them that that God's will, his plan, has been made known in Christ Jesus. And we can understand things now because of Christ Jesus. Candidly, that's a ton of stuff. And, and if we just stopped there, we would be in awe for the rest of our lives if we just wrapped our heads around that. Paul wanted our brothers and sisters to never forget these things. These were anchors, truth, that had they held on to, they might not have ended up where they did when our Lord wrote a letter to them in the Revelation to John saying, that they were in dire straits because while they were doing everything else right, they had forgotten him, their first love. Then we get to our text today. After reminding them of who, in essence, of who they are now, we get to the beginning of chapter 2, and he reminds them of first what they were before that, And second, how it was possible for them to become what they are now. These also are anchors. And and as we work with these, it it makes the other realities that he's already addressed even more wonderful. The first thing he says in chapter 2 is a whopper. Especially when you consider the heights of glory and wonder and awe and blessing he had just concluded. And it is this that they were dead. He's referring to their existence before believing in Jesus, but he says they were dead in their trespasses and sin. We really need to understand this. Those of us who are familiar with the classic movie, The Princess Bride, might want to think that Miracle Max was right and there is such a thing as mostly dead. However, according to the Bible and reality, when you are dead, you are dead. And no miracle pill, even if it is chocolate-coated like Miracle Max's was, will bring you back. When you are dead, you are dead, and there is no hope, just rot. Dead does not mean sick. Dead does not mean young and need to grow older and mature. Dead does not mean uninformed. Dead does not mean pretty good and just need a little tweaking by God and then maybe we'll be good enough for heaven. Dead means dead. And they were, we were, dead. 
do we really believe this? Do we really grasp this? Do we understand that before we were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we were actually dead without hope? And this, is, this can be a hard one for us to wrap our minds around. In, in my own life, for instance, I remember um, before receiving Jesus where I would walk around and, and pray, and, and before I'd known him as my Lord and Savior, I actually was wondering and trying to figure out this Jesus stuff. Was I really dead at that point? I didn't feel dead. Empty. Yes, I felt empty, but not dead. But I was dead. According to the Bible, God's own word, the word of the very one who made life in the first place, and the one who actually defeated death, I was dead. He should know. And I was a child of wrath, meaning my only future was hell. And there was nothing I could do to change my condition because I was dead. So were you. And if you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you still are. A modern metaphor, and I realize this might seem kind of weird, that that might help us understand our condition before receiving Christ, and no sighing when I mention this, is is zombies. (laughs) And for what it's worth, there, there is a plethora of information about these fictitious characters popularized in movies and TV shows, YouTube discussions. Zombies are dead. Ask any of the zombie experts on the Internet, and there's a whole bunch of them, and Google will also tell you zombies are dead. They are dead and still moving around and rotting and behaving in ways that a living person does not believe but they're dead. They will not get better. They will not come back to life. They are dead and destined to the existence of rotting and endlessly walking around being nothing, anything that we want to be. One of the the many problems with the movies about zombies and, and this belief in zombies, which interestingly people are more willing to believe in zombies than the fact that God created the heavens and the earth, But one of the problems with this is that it distracts from the truth. There are real zombies, dead people, walking around, behaving in ways that living people were not created to behave and are destined for destruction. They're the lost of which we once were. I like that. You come to church and your pastor tells you you once were a zombie. One of the walking dead. But, but actually, actually, Paul did it first. Hear again what he said in the first couple of verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience. The truth is that those who do not know Christ are dead and walking around, fulfilling the passions of their flesh as children of wrath. 
the goal of these zombies is not to roam around and wreak havoc like the ones in the movies, though some real zombies, those who are dead and walking around without Christ, really do wreak a lot of havoc and create a lot of harm. These real zombies are simply the lost. The the walking dead who are going to hell and are desperately in need of a Savior who can give them life. We need to understand this. We need to understand that before we were raised to life in Christ Jesus, born again, we were dead. Very much like zombies. Still moving around, still doing things, but dead and rotting and no longer behaving like we were created to behave. Not quite as cinematic as the zombie movies, but much worse. In the movies, these zombies can actually be terminated. And most effectively, according to the wealth of knowledge on the internet on how to kill a zombie, you kill them by cutting off their heads. But the real zombies, who are still dead in their sins and trespasses, who are dead and walking around us every day, they are going to experience the wrath of God for eternity. Before Christ caused us to be born again, we were the walking dead, going through life without hope and rotting and destined for nothing but decay and destruction. That was us. Paul wanted them to remember that. We need to remember that. And then, or more specifically, as Paul says at the beginning of verse 4, but God... Or you can say, and then because of God, who is rich in mercy and loved us beyond immeasurably, even when we were zombies, made us alive and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were dead, and God did not chop off our heads with a sword. He gave us life. He made us new. We must get this. He did not merely fix us. He made us alive and new because we were dead and dead things are dead and they stay dead. He caused us to be born again. And the reason he did this matters. God God made us alive because of his mercy, because he loved us. Because of his grace, which means that we didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. God made us alive because of his love and his grace. Think with me on this. You were dead. No hope. Out of love and grace... God made you alive, no longer destined for eternal wrath. And he raised you up to the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he could show you and all creation the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. Think about that. He saved us by grace 
from being the walking dead so he could show us his love, so he could show us his mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. My brothers and sisters, it's not that enough. If we held on to that, how could we ever forget Jesus, our first love? And then we get to one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, I'm going to read 8 and 9 here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. As you might be aware, this verse has a grammatical issue that has turned into a theological issue that has been the source of division within the church for way too long. Follow me. There are dear brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we will spend eternity who think that the phrase, it is a gift of God, is in reference to faith or the ability to believe in God. For them, faith is the gift from God. One of, if not the primary reason underlying this understanding is the belief that if faith is not a gift or given to us, something not of ourselves, as referenced in the verse, then that would make something make faith something that we bring to the table. Accordingly, for some, this would mean that we are contributing of sorts to our salvation and basically making faith, turning faith into a work. And since we are not saved by works, faith cannot originate with us. So it, so it must be, according to this verse, according to these brothers and sisters, understood that faith, the ability to believe in God, is the gift Paul is referring to. There are also other dear brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we will spend eternity who believe that the phrase, it is a gift of God, references not faith, but the gift of God is all that has been said to that point. Basically, the gift of God is the whole salvation narrative made possible by grace allowing those who have faith in Jesus to be saved. In this case, our belief in God is the only thing that we do. For these believers, faith is not a work, but an acceptance, an acknowledgement of the reality. And it, it, it is within our, our own capabilities, apart from God giving us that ability to believe in him. Now, now it might seem like this is hair-splitting, but it really is kind of a big deal. And much ink and much blood has been spilled over it. And it has led to a whole bunch of division within the church over the years. But the fact is that this one is not going to be settled this side of eternity. And in the end, we're all probably going to find out that we came up short on some point of this issue. There are saints on earth and in heaven who held to and hold to both positions. And anyone who thinks otherwise, I believe, is the one who's fundamentally in error. For me, I simply turn to the cranberry a la sauce 
cranberry a la Bart metaphor. And if you don't recall that scene from Bart Simpson's show, it's a very, very important scene. So important that when you go to the internet, it even prints it out, the whole narrative, and you get to hear about the cranberry a la, a la Bart um, metaphor. So Bart is just kind of buzzing around the kitchen in the way, and Marge says, honey, please, you're in the way. Can I help you, Mom? Marge, well, okay, let's see. Can you do the cranberry sauce? Yeah, yeah, where is it? The can opener is the cupboard on the bottom of the shelf, so he goes and looks in every cupboard. Where, 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 where? Oh, oh, here. No, 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 the other shelf. Okay, 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 got it. Now what, now what, now what? Okay, open the can. No problemo. Where's the can opener? Where's the can opener? Where's the can opener? It's in the second drawer from the right. No, 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 the other one. Oh, oh, oh I got you. Oh, he tries the can opener. It's broken, it's broken, it's broken. Mom, it's broken, it's broken, it's broken. Marge, I don't think it's broken, honey. Uh, she goes over and takes it. and Here, let me try. And she opens the can and hands it back to him. Bart then takes the can, holds it over the bowl, and gravity slowly causes it to come out. And he stands back and goes, Ah, cranberry sauce, a la Bart. <laughs> then he, as she is telling him to put it in the refrigerator to complete the job, he's walking away. Just stick it in the refrigerator when you're done, Bart. Bart? Bart? Well, where'd I go? Yeah. When, did Bart make the sauce? Uh, when it comes down to it, the most he did was hold the can in the right position, and gravity even did the work for him. Regardless of how you resolve this debate between faith is the gift or the gift is God's work of salvation such that we can be saved by grace through faith, God is the one who should get the credit for the outcome. God made the can, held the sauce. He made the sauce, the cranberries themselves, the can opener, the mom giving the instruction, the gravity, the metal for the can, the bowl. God created us, died for us, convicted us of a sin, called us, predestined us before we were born, is faithful when we were not, had mercy when we did not deserve it, raises us from the dead, to say that believing in God is a work almost feels like saying Bart made the cranberry sauce. He didn't. On the other hand, to say that God gave the Simpson family cranberry sauce a la Bart without Bart's involvement seems rather pointless. The testimony of the scriptures and, and an honest awareness of myself uh, leads me to be convinced that God gave me faith. For I know I would not and could not believe without him and his mercy and patience with me. I also know that God gave me the gift of salvation that, that could come about only by his grace through faith, even though I absolutely did not deserve it. And I'm quite confident 
that affirming both of these truths is closer to what the Ephesians did when they first heard these words. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Now let's um, take a look at what Paul says we were saved for. He says in verse 10 that all of this, this being unzombified and saved through faith, was that we could do the good works, works that he had prepared for us to do even before we were saved by grace through faith. Our being saved by grace through faith is so that we would walk in those works. So we should do them. This means believing in him. This means trusting him. This means serving him by serving others. It means loving others and telling others about him. And when we do these things, when we walk this way, We do them not to earn anything, for in Christ we have all we could ever need. But we do them so that we will simply be what we were made to be. No longer the walking dead, being led by our sinful, selfish, wrath-bound passions, but children of God walking and doing what he designed us to do, his work. And while we need to remember that we were truly dead, destined for wrath, and that he made us alive entirely by grace through faith, that he did that, that we who could do what we were created to do, we also need to remember that there are a lot of zombies out there. In fact, we're surrounded. We're actually outnumbered by them. And our goal is not to kill them by lopping off their heads, but to love them to life. Our battle plan involves introducing them to Jesus so that they no longer need to be dead. I know that the whole issue seems to come up every Wednesday night at Bible study of what good is it to talk to the dead since they are dead and they can't hear or if they're going to believe they will or they cannot respond unless God calls them or if they're dead, how can you convince them of anything? I mean, those questions linger whenever this issue comes up. But candidly, none of that stuff matters. We have been commanded by our Lord to go and make disciples. We have heard his statement of his desire. And while we might not fully understand or comprehend how it all works out, his desire that all be saved. We know that individuals are called to repentance. We need to obey him. And we're surrounded by dead people who are walking around destined for wrath. And they need Jesus. And they can be born again like we were. And they no longer need to be dead in their sins and trespasses and destined for wrath, like we were. Someone told us, and we are now alive. Let's tell others. 
That is one of the works he saved us to do. We can defeat the, the world of zombies, of which we once were, by being Christ's body made for good works, which involves loving the lost whom he came to save. And we need to never forget our first love and what he's done, raised us from death. He made us who were dead alive by grace through faith. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing to us how you have brought this about. Purely by your grace, because of your love, you have given us life, you've forgiven us of our sins, you've granted us an eternity in your presence, and we thank you. Lord, help us to remember those things that our brother Paul was telling our brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Not just for head knowledge, but that we will never forget you and what you have done. In the name of Jesus, amen.